But if you will, please turn, me, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 31. We'll be looking at verse 24. <clears throat> While I'll read a few portions during the sermon, I'm not intending to read the whole psalm right now. The uh, psalm ends with this word of encouragement. Verse 23 and 24. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. At the conclusion of this morning's service, we will be singing Psalm 31d, which ends with this rendering of the psalmist's words of encouragement in verse 24. So then, be strong and steadfast, and let your heart be brave, all you who wait with patience, wait on the Lord to save. I was reminded of a practice that we maintained as our little ones were growing up. We would hold the psalm book and point to the words so that they could learn to read and sing along. But I imagine Jesus standing next to us, our elder brother, pointing to these words and encouraging us and speaking tenderly to us. I thought of this as we were singing that previous psalm where he aches with longing to keep God's law. And he wants us to be like him. He's left us an example to follow in his steps. There are many times as God's children when we face frightening circumstances on our journey heavenward. In those moments, our Savior and Lord Jesus longs, I believe, to take our hand in his, as it were, encouraging us to trust him and to be brave. It is the Spirit of Christ who inspired King David to compose these words. Not long ago, before she passed into glory, Isla May, my mother-in-law, was sitting in her physician's waiting room, waiting. A young boy engaged her in conversation. He too was waiting. In his case, he was about to have x-rays taken or some other scary medical procedure. He admitting, admitted to being afraid. So Isla kindly encouraged him to be brave. As the boy left his mother to follow the nurse down the hallway, Isla heard him quietly repeating the phrase, I'm brave. I'm brave. This brief encounter with a courageous little boy strengthened Isla in the months to come, for she was facing the frightening reality of a much more momentous appointment, her appointment with death. She too would often turn to the Lord and recite the words, I'm brave. Yes, Christ strengthened her to valiantly overcome fear in order to trust the Lord to escort her safely into his eternal kingdom. In difficult moments since then, my wife, Gay, and I will occasionally recall this and look at each other with a glimmer of hope in our eyes, encouraging each other to be brave. I'm brave is a phrase that we've learned to express 
in faith and confidence that the Lord will give us victory. Gay would often comfort and encourage our little ones with words from Psalm 56.3, What time I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. Verse 4 continues, In God I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can flesh do unto me? When tucking me into bed at night as a child, my, my own mother taught me to trust in the Lord for protection. As many children have done, I memorized this popular bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Another version ends this way. If I should live for other days, I pray thee, Lord, to guide my ways. Still another. May the angels watch me through the night and keep me in their blessed sight. Interestingly, this children's prayer from the 18th century, first written, <clears throat> first written by Joseph Addison, echoes the sentiment of Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Or as the King James has it, the New King James, God of truth. More on that later. You children, see if you can pick it up later in the sermon. I have some more to say about what Jesus cried out on the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit. Because of this message of redemption, I delight to sing the final words of Psalm 31d in our book of Psalms for worship. So then be strong and steadfast and let your heart be brave. All you who wait with patience, wait on the Lord to save. Let's consider together the meaning and practical applications of this verse for King David, for Christ Jesus, and for you and me. The, distinct, the distinguished Greek translators of this psalm who labored in the centuries just before Christ and his apostles <clears throat> included a word in their title which means astonishment, terror, alarm or extreme fear. <clears throat> Death is called in Scripture the king of terrors. Death is coming for you and for me. It is appointed unto man wants to die and after that the judgment. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've earned the wages of death. But praise be to God, there is a Savior who has destroyed death and the devil has been vanquished and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. We certainly can imagine circumstances in David's life when he might cry out in alarm. Psalm 31 verses 21 and 22 express this in David's life. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. 
but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Our Psalter renders this nicely. Besieged once like a city, I faced the enemy. I said when filled with panic, I'm cast out from your sight. But still you heard my pleading when I cried out in fright. David's bravery was legendary. As a youth faced with Goliath, he declared to King Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. But there were moments later on when Saul was pursuing him and when Absalom and Ahithophel betrayed him that his heart was filled with panic and fear, even tainted with sin. C.H. Spurgeon wisely commented, Some have thought that the occasion in his troubled life which led to this psalm was the treachery of the men of Keilah, and we have felt much inclined to this conjecture. But after reflection, it seems to us that its very mournful tone and its allusion to his iniquity demand a later date. And it may be more satisfactory to illustrate it by the period when Absalom had rebelled and his courtiers were fled from him, while lying lips spread a thousand malicious rumors against him. It is perhaps quite well that we have no settled season mentioned, or we might have been so busy in applying it to David's case as to forget its suitability to our own. And I might add, as to forget its chief reference to Christ's troubled life. In any case, King David experienced, because of his real union with Christ, a fellowship of suffering with our Savior and the foreshadowing of that Savior to come. And through marvelous deliverances in times when he was filled with panic and when he cried out in fright, he not only foreshadowed Christ's agonies, but could, indeed, encourage all who wait with patience to wait on the Lord to save, for He saves indeed. In this season of my, my preaching ministry, I often meditate long on a verse or even a phrase of Scripture. Like a jeweler admiring a sparkling, multifaceted gemstone, I take a long time admiring this verse or phrase, perfectly cut and polished by our divine master jeweler. Psalm 31:24 is composed of six words in Hebrew. The first two are verbs commanding and exhorting us to be brave and show strength. We who are waiting for the Lord to deliver us certainly need this encouragement. Under divine inspiration, David composed Psalm 31 during his lifetime and in real life-threatening circumstances. However, according to Peter, 
to some degree, he understood that he was ultimately testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To him, along with the other Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So what did this psalm mean for Christ? And how did he appropriate it, practically speaking, during his life of suffering? If we forget that God the Son became flesh and blood, really and truly human in nature, as well as divine in nature, we might easily reject notions of him experiencing genuine panic and fright. Albeit, without sin, he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Psalm 88b, stanza 9 in our book of Psalms for Worship, expresses words inspired by the Spirit of Christ and prepared for Jesus to use in his lifetime. Surely he thought of this verse, these verses, when he was a boy, when he was a youth, when he was a man. From youth I've been distressed, about to die. Your terrors I have borne. Distraught was I. Your burning anger over me has passed. Your terrors all have cut me off at last. Dare we imagine Jesus during childhood awakening with night terrors? His mother or father comforting him, quoting a verse as my wife did to our children. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. This suggests that in his emotional life, Jesus was impacted by the horrors of our iniquities. Psalm 31 was surely a comfort to him, and truly his words of encouragement to us in our need of deliverance. See him in his agony of soul, praying in Gethsemane. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He truly longed for the comfort in knowing that his closest disciples were watching and praying with him. How grieved he must have been that they could not watch with him for even an hour. Instead, overwhelmed with their own grief, they fell asleep on the watch. We learn from the epistle to the Hebrews that in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, it's hard to imagine Jesus learning anything, but in his humanity, he did learn. He did experience things and grow and increase in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. He was a little baby. He grew up as a boy, as a youth, as a young man. Luke the physician carefully researched the life of Christ and wrote an orderly account that we might know the certainty of those things in which we were instructed. 
He declared as truth that in the garden, Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops, drops of blood falling to the ground. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, speaks about an agony, a wrestling in prayer. I'm sure you've experienced it in your own life, some moments of agony and wrestling in prayer with tears and crying out to God. I. Howard Marshall, in his New Testament Greek commentary, highlighted our Savior's final prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He noted, rarely would a crucified man, after hours on the cross, have the strength to cry out in such a loud voice. This illustrates, in my opinion, his divine and spirit-anointed strength in the accomplishment of our redemption in his genuine humanity. Luke affirms that after three hours of dreadful darkness and dereliction, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, We must, however, remember that Jesus never sinned in his expressions of emotion. I believe that he identified with our panic and anxiety, which we often express sinfully. How he could experience panic and and fright without sinning as God the Son in unfallen, sinless flesh, I don't know. But the Bible says that we are one with Christ and we have a fellowship in His suffering. We are one with Him in fellowship with His suffering and He with us in ours. Yet in crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The other prayer that the Gospels record. There was no sinful doubting or sinful panic in his heart. He constantly trusted and knew that his Father was well pleased with him. Even as he was crying out on the cross, he was bearing our iniquities and atoning for our sins. Even now in heaven, our risen glorified Savior feels deep compassion for us in our earthly circumstances. He often wept as he contemplated the lost. And he possesses, I think, even now in heaven, a sinless rage against death that he displayed before Lazarus' tomb. He's angry at the devastating impact that it has upon us. Hear the words of Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that though rather through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Note carefully that Paul proclaimed in Romans 8 verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't send his Son in sinful flesh. He sent his Son in holy unfallen likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came in sinless, unfallen human flesh, which was experienced all through his life as under the curse on our behalf. In 1912, B.B. Warfield published an excellent treatise which helped me immensely in the early years of my pastoral ministry. It is titled, on the emotional life of our Lord. Happily, it is soon to be available again by Crossway Publishers in their Crossway Short Classic series. In his penetrating analysis, Warfield has given us a biblically accurate and balanced portrait of the genuine emotional experience of Jesus in this world during his redemptive mission to seek and to save his lost sheep. Warfield, this great teacher, concluded that when we observe him exhibiting the movements of his human emotions, we are gazing on the very process of our salvation. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows. And having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Don't ever doubt that Jesus, even now in glory, is touched with sympathy and compassion, with a feeling of our infirmities. If there are tears in heaven, they're the tears of Jesus now waiting and praying for us, waiting for us to be successfully brought through to glorious salvation and, and entrance into His eternal kingdom. Finally, let's take a moment to reflect on a few implications for you and me. Elihu spoke inspired truth, although he lacked Job's integrity before God. Recently, I was reading John Owen's thoughts on Psalm 131, and he's, the main big section of that is on verse 4, or rather, I think it's verse 5. Where he, no, it's verse 4, where he says, in this wonderful and joyful discovery, yet there is forgiveness with thee that you may be feared. And the ancient commentators saw a hint there in, in one version that, that you may be seen or that you might look upon us. That's the joy and the wonder of the discovery of the gospel. For as I said earlier, you and I and all sinners are on death's row. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all earned the wages of death. But as John Owen said, in citing Elihu's words to Job. And if you want to look them up, you can find them. 
in Job 33.11 and Job 33.24, Owen paints this beautiful picture of the man on death row. He's been arrested, convicted, sentenced, and he's waiting for the jailer to come to take him to the executioner. Not all sinners are awakened to that reality. Not even all Christians fully realize the horrifying reality of it. But Elijah spoke of the fact that our feet are in the fetters, that we're in prison, that the jailer's coming to take us to the executioner. The awakened sinner realizes that and marvels at this one who became sin for us, who knew no sin. This Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This substitute, the one upon whom our hands rest as the Lamb of God sacrificed for us. In His death, in His life, in His obedience, in His suffering and humiliation and death on the cross, Jesus was bearing your iniquities and mine. As, a, as an awakened sinner, that brings great hope and joy and discovery that there is forgiveness with God, that He may be feared. How Jesus aches that you might obey and honor the Father and walk as He did. There's an old um, indication that either before Jesus' time or after Jesus' time, that phrase in Psalm 31, Father, into thy hands I commit your spirit, was an evening prayer, routinely offered. As children, as adults lay down to sleep, they would say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. John Calvin taught me to understand my lying down and sleeping and arising again as a little drama, a picture of my death and resurrection. It's an appropriate prayer for Jesus on the cross as He breathes His last, for you on your deathbed. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But children, when you go to sleep at night, quote Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. He will keep you and deliver you into a glorious entrance into His eternal kingdom if you should fall asleep and die before you wake. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, God-breathed and profitable, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 31, verse 24, teaches you to be brave, be strong in the face of adversity, in moments of panic and fear and fright. Be brave. It's both a command and an encouragement. C.H. Spurgeon said, keep up your spirit. Let no craven thoughts blanch your cheek. Fear weakens. Courage strengthens. Victory waits upon the banners of the brave. And he shall strengthen your heart 
Power from on high shall be given in the most effectual manner by administering force to the fountain of vitality. So far from leaving us, the Lord will draw very near to us in our adversity and put his own power into us, all ye that hope in the Lord. Every one of you, lift up your heads and sing for joy of heart. God is faithful and does not fail, even his little children who do but hope. Wherefore, then, should we be afraid? We're more than conquerors. Christ has triumphed over death. He is risen. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And you and I, by faith, in our union with Him, are seated there in the heavenly places. We are conducting business in heaven's parliament right now as we are assembled here in the presence of myriads of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. If you had eyes to see, if he were to pull back the curtain, you would see the angelic hosts and the spirits of just men made perfect, exulting in triumph. Friends, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Don't be discouraged. Learn to practice godly self-talk. I learned this years ago from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition of the Psalms. Why, my soul, take yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, why, my soul, are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Hope now in God, for I shall yet praise Him. I will continue to praise Him and exult triumphantly despite my circumstances. Listen to Christ's exhortation here and exhort others as you've experienced His deliverance be quick to tell others, as Psalm, as David in Psalm 1, 30, 31 tells others about his marvelous deliverances. But as the bulletin points out, in conclusion, I want to point you to Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and Philippians 4, 13. God doesn't call upon you to be brave in your own strength. He commands you, just as He spoke this universe into being by the word of His power, He commands the light to shine in your hearts and He gives you strength through the Holy Spirit. We can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In his prayer report to the Ephesians, in the second part here, in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, he prays, that God would strengthen them in the inner person. And I want to read his words. This is how he prayed for them. And this is how I pray for you. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying for these Ephesians, and I pray for you, that God would strengthen you through His might and the Holy Spirit, so that... You can bear the weight of Christ's glory as He dwells in your hearts, as He walks among you. 
so that you can comprehend and calculate the length and breadth and height and depth of His love, this love that surpasses knowledge, so that you, as you contemplate Christ in His love for you, agonizing in the garden and praying for you by name, even now in heaven, that you would be strengthened to understand that more and more. But thirdly, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. We need to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for God to rend the heavens and come down to, to meet with us every week as we come together. May God bless you and strengthen you. And may you be brave as you face your difficulties and challenges.